0: Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this episode is someone I've been trying to get on the podcast for a very long time. George Hodgson is an entrepreneur, mental health advocate, public speaker and the founder of mental health fashion platform and brand, Maison de Choup. George founded the brand in 2017, the inspiration for which came after his severe anxiety, panic attacks and OCD episode. The brand was set up to not only share his story of suffering, but also encourage others to share their story, breaking down the stigma of suffering from poor mental health. I actually own a Maison de Choup t-shirt myself, so there's no hashtag ad here. Myself and George met while speaking at a panel event a few years ago of another mental health platform called the Whole Man Academy. After connecting, George invited me onto his podcast called Talking About in April 2020, which is sadly no longer active. Since then, George has had a lot of highs and a lot of difficult downs with not just the brand, but also his own mental health, and the two have informed each other at various points in that period. In this episode, we discuss how and why he started the brand, what he wanted to achieve with it, and the impact that COVID-19 has had on Maison de and his mental health as a result. We discuss the irony of trying to run a small business about mental health, which can cause mental health difficulties in and of itself, and the next stage of the brand he is taking it on through working with young creatives, selling their work on the platform, and building a new community to help more people as a result. For George's mental health journey, we discuss his experience of panic attacks and anxiety from an early age, a negative experience with MDMA, which triggered an episode of obsessive compulsive disorder, a flare-up with his anxiety he had in 2018-2019, which made him come off social media for a while, and finally, his own gender stereotype nonconformity as a male. We talk about how he has received ignorant comments from people assuming his sexuality and why we might actually... Be going backwards not forwards when it comes to this issue so this is how my conversation with george hodgson went george welcome to the just checking pod mate i've wanted to have you on for such a long time ever since you invited me on to talking about and we've had a few hiccups on the technical issues my end so apologies for that this morning first off how are you mate
1: Pretty good, actually. I'm not too bad. I've got a bit of a cold, I must confess. So apologies if I sound a bit nasally, but on the whole, I'm quite well, which is nice. So yeah, I'm all good. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thanks, mate. I'm very well. I love talking to fellow men who run their own mental health platforms, mate. And you are a man who's been doing this probably as long as me perhaps even slightly longer so you're you're a veteran in the game pretty much without further ado mate are you ready to start the show
1: I'm ready I'm ready by veteran I hope you mean making mistakes and kind of carrying on and um, yeah let's (laughs) go
0: Let's talk about your baby Maison de Chute to start the pod, George. So, firstly, nice and easy question. I'm sure you get this a lot when you do other media interviews, you've got a pre prepared spiel for. How and why did you decide to start the brand? Where does it come from? And the journey from where you started in 2017 to where you are today?
1: Yeah, so MDC or Maison de Chute started many years ago when I suffered myself severely as a young teenager at 16. The journey goes back to when I went to when it was finished school, my friends and I went to a festival and experimented with drugs. Unfortunately for me, it wasn't the type of personality I wasn't the type of personality that suited them. Forgot about them about three weeks later I sort of was quite poorly with my mental health and I had to go and get support. Went to the NHS who told me I'd have to wait forty weeks and I was in quite a desperate situation you know, feeling thoughts of suicide. OCD was incredibly bad, anxiety and panic attacks. So my parents could very fortunately send me privately. And it was during the time I was having private therapy, a period of about three years. I was writing and drawing down on my thoughts and feelings in a notebook in notes of notebooks actually I had quite a lot of them. As I came out the other side of my experience with my poor mental health I started to realise that I wanted to do something with my drawings and, and not only that but I sort of thought what on earth do young people do that can't afford to go privately for their mental health especially when you're that young and the waiting list is 40 weeks. So I landed on the idea of putting my designs on a t-shirt and thought if I could wear my design about my own mental health it would encourage people to not only ask about what the design or t-shirt meant but would be a door opener for starting the conversation about mental health and what i was experiencing to so my friends my family and anyone else that i met essentially and then i realized that actually i could expand it further or less and do it for other people if other people could wear T-shirts with designs that spoke about mental health, and in a subtle, non-triggering way that you wouldn't exactly know it, but were designs that people really liked and thought were cool and felt comfortable wearing. But if someone said, "That's a cool design," what's that about? They could either talk about their own mental health journey, or they could talk about mine. Either way, you're starting the conversation about mental health, and that's where Maison de Jeep was born. And from there, it's been a bit of a journey from sort of being quite successful to taking too much wrong advice and hitting sort of rock bottom and then COVID hitting. So we're just sort of resurfacing now and, and transforming into a platform of telling other people's stories on the young creative platform. Because although when I started, it was about my story encouraging other people that it's okay to talk about the mental health. I wanted other young people, other young creatives who had experienced poor mental health to use their own designs and tell their story and their journey through clothing as a vehicle and also earn some recognition and hopefully some money from it so the brand is now turning more into a platform essentially the name came from a nickname for my sister when i was younger her name's charlotte and i called her charlotte poops but then i merged it into one and called her choup and maison d is house of in french so it's essentially house of charlotte although i get a lot of french people asking me what it means i have to explain it as they then sort of soon understand <laughs> but it, it's it's almost like a dedication to her and how close we are and how she helped me through when i was suffering so that's a sort of the short version of how the brand came to be and how it's sort of moving into the future
0: excellent mate and what i want to talk about there you covered a few things that i wanted to ask about but just on the mistakes that you said you made and the the wrong advice obviously you don't have to go into too much detail about what they actually were but just tell me about the reality of that how do you reflect on it was there ever a point where you thought about packing it all in and do you also think in some ways that maybe without those mistakes you be where you are today you know what's your mindset now
1: It's a great question and I don't mind delving slightly into the mistakes because if it helps other people recognize then that's what I'm here for essentially. The mistakes were what had happened was that MDC was on a very positive trajectory. It was growing quite fast. We were doing markets, we were doing Christmas stores, we were doing sort of two markets at a time and we're getting good press and PR and the sales were growing quite a lot. Recognition was becoming more known, contacts were building. We didn't get cocky But we got a little bit blindsided by it and thought it would be now a good time to get some investment so we decided to focus our energies on trying to find an investor and we had someone on board who said they'd be able to help but we need some documents to be able to do this and we need to pay for these documents to be built from someone else because we didn't have the i'm not going to say business now but we we weren't experts in the building of documents for investors to see you know, you need pitch decks, you need business plans, and we'd winged it all the way up until now. And I still firmly believe that you don't always need these things to be able to grow a business. You just need to have a passion, a story, and a drive. So we were building these documents, and there was just two of us: it was myself and my father. And we essentially took our eye off the ball of the momentum we were getting. We took our eye off off of it and focused more on the building of these documents to get some investment. Once we'd done that, we'd spend. A lot of the money in the budget we were getting from the momentum to build these documents and then lost the momentum, took our after the ball too late and couldn't get it back. When we were left with these documents without any guidance on how to find the right investors. And so we're sort of left in the dust a little bit and lost all the momentum we had because we took our after the ball. Essentially, the moral of that story is going for investment too early and thinking it would be a good idea when you have the momentum to get it. When actually it was not the right timing and that was a huge blow for us and then COVID hit so we couldn't essentially regain all our losses in that time because COVID hit and the world essentially stopped so now we're in a position where we're still I would say in a place of hardship it's still very difficult because we've got to regain all our momentum with no budget and that is a tough place to be but revisiting and kind of building the groundwork and having the community that we had is the credibility that we've got to keep us going essentially. I'm in a period of transition in my life as well with a lot going on so it's in an interesting place. It's very exciting but at the same time it's very difficult and it sometimes can take its toll and has guided us and made us wary of the decisions we make going forward and made sure that everything we're kind of doing is is for the right reasons, the right purposes and we don't get blindsided and make sure to kind of follow the right guidance.
0: I sense a really big irony here, mate, and it's one I share a lot of commonalities with, but perhaps not to as greater extent as you've gone through, which is trying to run a small business or a platform or anything to do with mental health, which can then cause mental health difficulties in and of itself. So how did you square that circle?
1: Yeah, I don't think I have 100% yet. <laughs> I think it, it's still something that I'm learning Because you're absolutely right, running and trying to grow a business or a platform, whatever that is, on your own or with someone else is incredibly difficult and it will always cause anxiety, stress and days when you feel like crying. That's okay as long as you're aware of it and I think it's that self-awareness and being aware of how you're feeling and, and, and that it's not the be all and end all of life if you make mistakes. Putting too much pressure on yourself to be able to be successful by a certain age is also a huge pressure that i think a lot of young people are experiencing now with the rise of social media and linkedin and all of these platforms that are encouraging you that you have to work a certain way and be successful and work 27 hours of a day is is insane so i think um, in answer to your question self-awareness and being kinder to yourself that there's no rush or no hurry to be successful and grow it taking that it's slower and recognizing that if it's not working, then it's okay to step back and revisit or do something else or stop it completely.
0: Like you said, mate, you now work with a lot of young creators and building this community platform. So I guess my next question is, do you see yourself in some of these creators and where they are in their own respective mental health journeys? And was that a big reason why you wanted to support them and help them grow themselves as well as you to help grow Maison de Shoup?
1: I think in these young creatives, what I see is young people trying to navigate the waters of life. A lot of them have just finished university. I myself, as a caveat, didn't go to university, but I know the struggles that university presents, my sister, um, case in point. In university, people are almost in a bubble of life, and when they leave university, the bubble bursts, and they entered into a world that is very different from the one that university teaches you about. Depending on what you're studying, in particular, the creative industries, My parents are both creatives. They both had an agency. And it's something that is very tricky to get into, not only because young people get taken advantage of, but because it's, it's so subjective. And when you add in poor mental health into that mix, it becomes even trickier to try and break through. So essentially what I wanted to do for young people was give them a platform to share their work, share their voice and their journey, but also give them the courage that it's okay to talk about their own mental health through their work. And by doing that, I hope to share their platform and give them some credibility that if they were going to get a job in the future, they could share what they had done for MDC and how they've been using passion and story as a message for the future. It's still growing. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. The sales are still quite low for the young people, but I hope that even the experience of doing it is quite cathartic for them going forward.
0: Let's reflect then on this journey so far doing Maison de Choup, George. So firstly, what has been your proudest achievement doing it in the time you have?
1: Hmm. What's my proudest achievement? I think um, being able to create... Actually, let me go back on that. I think being an early adopter of opening up and talking about mental health, using fashion as a vehicle to do it before it became a big thing. Because when I was doing it, quite a lot of years ago it was only an idea but i think we were slightly ahead of the game in in breaking down stigma and and, and opening up discussions and talking about mental health in a free way that that was encouraging others to do the same and obviously it's now a lot bigger and it's spoken about everywhere which means it's become a lot harder actually to try and grow the platform and break through but i believe that We were one of the the early adopters of it. You know, I put that down to credit of opening up and talking about it being one of the most important factors of experiencing poor mental health.
0: And as a final question before we move on, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? That
1: I'm incredibly resilient, although I don't like the word resilient, so I'm going to use the word tenacious. I'm like a terrier. Uh, When I've got hold of something, I don't let it go and don't give up. I'm also someone that keeps going. I always say, fail forward. I consistently make mistakes but I'm always failing forward and learning from them and carrying going and I think that's what I you know I would say I love about myself is that I get knocked down but I consistently get up and think of different ways of doing it some days it's a lot harder than others that's okay though because I know if I take a bit of a step back and a break then I feel a lot better the next day so I would say my tenacity is to keep going <laughs>
0: we talked all about Maison de Choupe. I want to talk about your own mental health journey now, George, and you've covered it a little bit already. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the George we meet here?
1: George we meet here is in primary school. He's a very hyperactive young person, can never settle, always restless, and always wanting to learn but never quite knowing how to control himself and his hyperactivity teachers found me difficult in particular one but another really understood me which I think helped me going forward and that was incredibly beneficial to me I had extra support at home when I say extra support I mean a lady came to the house and was teaching me sort of breathing exercises counting to 10 to calm me down and and slow my thoughts I would say I left primary school and went to secondary school I then was doing well in in secondary school actually, I was achieving well, I was focused, I had a good solid friends group which I think helped and I found myself enjoying it, although you're not sure how much of a school you can actually enjoy, but I didn't find it too difficult at the time. Essentially it started to falter at the end of secondary school when we all went to a festival, my friends and I, to, to sort of celebrate finishing school. And we went to a festival down in Somerset, and we experimented with drugs, MDMA in particular, a form of sort of ecstasy, really. And we snorted it, and I, I immediately didn't like it, and, and found myself struggling to enjoy the the, the kind of the experience, you, know, you could say. And then I sort of left it, and then did it again a couple of weeks later at a party, and thought I was dying, so recognized that after that that was definitely not the type of thing for me. And then I sort of left it and forgot about it and I was doing something in the horse's field and suddenly felt really hot, kind of vision sweating. Uh, and I thought immediately that I was on the MDMA again. Uh, heart was racing and I was convinced I had I told, ran inside and told my parents that I'd done the drugs, that I thought I was on the drugs again. And then we phoned the Handstock, which is like an online phone doctor service. And he told me I was having a panic attack. And this is where I first learned what a panic attack was. It lasts about 45 minutes. So, from primary school to being that hyperactive young boy into secondary school, where the anxiety sort of dissipated because I had a good friends group, and then to leaving school, experiencing the MDMA, and to bear in mind that. It was between school and secondary school and college that I had so much time on my hands. I almost had too much time to think. And that's where all of the thoughts, the anxieties, the panic attacks and the OCD started developing into a very quick mental health problem, I suppose you could say.
0: When it comes to the OCD that you just mentioned, George, do you think the MDMA exacerbated it and it was dormant? or did the MDMA directly contribute to the developing of your OCD, or was it just the case of the drug just didn't agree with you?
1: could be a combination of the three. I would say more so that OCD could have always been there. I wasn't so much aware of it, or I had it under control, and the MDMA became the catalyst, and something for the OCD slash anxiety to hone in on. Anxiety in particular, need something to focus on, you know, fester. When when we're anxious about something, there's always something we're anxious about, you know, living in the past or the future. And the OCD was stemming from that. To give an example of what exactly was happening, uh, I don't know if you'll need to put a trigger warning on what was going on, but I would believe convincingly that the drugs were still in my system. And I would touch anything or couldn't touch anything because I believed there were drugs, traces on everything. If I didn't go and wash my hands, I would have a panic attack. So I had to go and wash my hands. If I didn't wash my hands, I would be convinced that the drugs would seep through my skin into my bloodstream and into my system. And I'd be on the drug again. And that would result in a panic attack. It's a very vicious cycle. And I was washing my hands 100, 200 times a day. Mum was going through the loads of soap. It became exhausting so my reaction to this was to avoid going anywhere eventually i had to you know go everywhere my parents and then i stopped going out of the house and then i stopped going out of my bedroom and i couldn't touch anything i had to pick up things with different materials uh, fabrics you know bed sheets to pick up my tv controller and it became incredibly debilitating and, and exhausting in time my world shrunk so the ocd could have been dormant, but I would suspect that it was more of a catalyst reaction to the MDMA that I'd taken because it was very much focused on that. And OCD isn't something that you can, you don't sort of feel a bit OCD. No one's a bit OCD. OCD is always there. It's a very sort of misconcepted condition because I still have it now. I just know and have the coping mechanism to be able to manage it and and keep it under control. And there are days when I'm tired and I'm slightly vulnerable and susceptible to my anxieties and my OCD, That is worse. It's just not focused on the drugs anymore. It's more focused on certain things, which I won't go into so much because they're not relevant to the story, but it's still there. Like you
0: mentioned there, you were working on building some managing tools and some coping mechanisms so you're in this period of poor mental health for three to four years I'm right in saying your OCD is starting to get out of control you're in this self-induced state of agoraphobia as you mentioned and you're having panic attacks so what got you through it what coping mechanisms got you through it and when did you start to feel better mate?
1: I'd be negligent to say I got through it on my own I had this private therapy in the first instance, I had a adolescent psychiatrist who was doing hypnotherapy techniques with me to tackle the panic attacks first uh, because they were the reaction to everything. If we couldn't tackle those, then obviously the anxiety and the OCD would continue. So the hypnotherapy techniques were teaching me to understand and recognize what a panic attack felt like and even inducing them to feel them so I could associate a panic attack with being a panic attack and a a natural reaction to feeling fear. That was about a year and a half that I had hypnotherapy with the adolescent psychiatrist. I was also on medication prescribed by him and then he referred me well enough in his instance to see a CBT therapist, psychotherapy to cancer or a psychotherapist and this was to tackle the OCD and the anxiety and this was to sort of rationalize and break down the thinking towards you know step by step so as an example of how that could look if i had a headache i i immediately think i had a brain tumor in relation to ocd you can imagine if i touched some sugar i'd immediately think it was some sort of drug um, by breaking that thought down i could say okay i've got a headache it's quite hot today i haven't had much water maybe i'm dehydrated that's why i've got a headache And once you start to process the thoughts your brain goes to the path of least resistance and protects you most so when you've got a headache it's only pulling on the historic information that thinks you've got a a brain tumor whereas if you start giving it another suggestion or another thought or a rational thought because i'm dehydrated i just need to drink some water That's probably why i've got a headache it can process a lot easier so with the ocd i had to start employing that with thought journals With journals, with kind of spreadsheets and trackers, because a lot of CBT is homework. It's a lot of hard work. And there's a misconception about CBT just kind of working, but there's a lot of hard work and homework involved with it. So that's sort of how the COVID mechanism started to form through the three years of therapy. I then came out the other side and started practicing them on my own, was weaned off the medication, and they sort of became ingrained in me.
0: I want to fast forward to 2018, 2019 now because it was here that you had a flare up with your anxiety mate. So what was the trigger for this do you think and how did you handle it when it happened? Did it surprise you and what did you do to manage it and hopefully overcome it?
1: It was in part related to the experience obviously I was still quite raw from going to a festival and we went to a festival and it was a big festival and I feel you know, partly when there's bits you can't remember at a festival because you were drunk or whatever reason, or the brain fills in gaps, or, and memory is a very interesting thing to me. If you want to learn more about memory, it's quite scary actually. We're only remembering imprints of memories, we're only remembering memories, not the event itself, which for someone with anxiety is quite a terrifying thought. So I started filling in gaps with things that didn't happen, and social media started becoming difficult. So I took steps to made myself feel better I came off social media I started cooking healthy food because I found it cathartic going for walks and focusing on myself because I knew I needed the space and I needed to slow down and you can very easily get mixed up in social media you can kind of not stop and keep going and kind of just push on through but it doesn't work it will only make you worse so I know I needed to step back and revisit and have some me time essentially cook slow life down a little bit whilst I focused on myself, recognised what was going on, and gave myself time to recover, essentially, it was a bit of a surprise, to be honest. I didn't see it coming, but when it did come, I sort of understood why it came. And even now, you know, when you, when you have events or you go out with friends, even if you're not drinking and you can't remember certain things and you think about what you say, it, it's quite a scary thing, because you're so in fear that you said something that upset someone or that, you know, that something happened. And before you know it, your brain is convincing you did things you didn't even do. And that's OCD. So involuntary thoughts, they're called. And they'll just pop into your head and you won't even consider that they're just thoughts, but they feel very real. And they're very scary. And because the thoughts are so powerful and you, you take so much action to avoid hearing them or doing anything you start having the rituals the compulsions essentially this is why they always say you know people with OCD are the least likely people to act on the thoughts they have because they're so absolutely terrified they'll take any action to not have them so I recognised all this was happening and I needed to step back a little bit.
0: Before we reflect on your mental health journey mate when I came onto your podcast a few years ago when we finished chatting I remember us you know talking about various different things and one thing that came up from your side was your sexuality and your gender expression and how you dress, speak, engage with us, etc., etc., etc. Now you are quite gender stereotype non conforming and heterosexual, which is great and something that should be really celebrated. However, you said that most people, because of that, assume you're gay when they first meet you. So, was that initially annoying to keep receiving and just unpack that assumed ignorance from their side?
1: Fortunately, I would never say it was annoying. I would say it was more confusing really I have a pearl earring I have a nose ring I don't really know I wouldn't say I dress very you know I dress pretty normally I would say myself at least it's allegedly my demeanor that gives away that people think I'm gay and I would never find it annoying I would just be interested as to why they thought that is it because I'm very open about my mental health is it because I'm very open about my emotions is it because I am very the most opposite form of lad you can imagine you know I'd rather be with a group of girls who can for once I don't know if this is controversial but sometimes be more emotionally intelligent I'm going to use the term there and be more open to talking about their emotions and go further than talking about certain subjects essentially and maybe it was all of those things combined but in answer to the question of it's something that I find worrying and sometimes I feel that there are certain types of people that feel threatened by it and that's where the danger comes in you know as I'm studying part-time psychotherapy to counselling we can look quite deep into those experiences that when someone does feel threatened even if you're not gay by someone that's very in touch with their feminine side what's going on for that person what's happened in their life that's made them feel that way and why do they feel the need to have a shield up? have a shell that they can't break or can't be in touch with their emotions it's quite sad I think and it sometimes needs to be sort of reflected on essentially and perhaps that's why it didn't annoy me as much as confuse me or interest me into understanding essentially.
0: I completely get what you mean mate and I've spoken about this quite a few times that I joke that And I joke about it because I own it. But I remember when I was in university and I remember getting comments from a couple of people who thought I was gay because, quote unquote, I wore skinny jeans. And I just found it like completely confusing coming from a place where, yes, I was in a school which was very homophobic. But when I left that, I presumed that the real world would kind of be not basing gender stereotype, nonconformity on on all of this stuff and just general ignorance, basically. So. Do you think we're actually going backwards a little bit here, and we're becoming more bound to gender and sexuality stereotypes, not less?
1: I think it's getting harder for people to understand. It's getting more confusing, and there's a level of knowledge that is required now to understand everything that's happening with the amount of LGBTQI plus plus. I think it's getting harder for people to understand, and a almost an ignorance to want to understand which i'm not saying is a bad thing because there's levels where it's it's tricky to it's almost like learning a new language now and there are some people that that are stuck in their ways which is difficult and i think we're not necessarily going backwards but the world is moving faster and we're not moving with it essentially so we might be staying still and not moving forwards with the world is that going backwards? I don't know. Or is it just not moving with the times, essentially? But it is getting harder, I think, to understand every side of the story.
0: Let's reflect now on your mental health journey, George. So, A, how have these experiences shaped you into the person you are today? And what have they taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and speak to that six or seven-year-old George who was struggling with anxiety in primary school, that teenage george who had just taken the mdma and had that really negative reaction to it and spiraled into that episode of ocd or the george who was in the midst of that flare up with his anxiety and perhaps doubting himself about the future of maison de shoop and this wonderful brand that you've built what would you say to him knowing what you do now
1: so the first one would be that all these experiences have shaped me into who i am to be a more knowledgeable person to be a more empathetic person and understanding and it's given me my purpose essentially i've realized that mental health helping people poor mental well raising awareness for mental health is my passion and what i want to do going forward you know from studying psychotherapy to counseling and using it as a professional capacity to raising awareness through the brand and they've taught me that mainly about self-awareness, and it is a superpower. Being self-aware is a superpower. The more you know about yourself, your reactions, your triggers, what upsets you and why, the more you can kind of understand yourself and other people and put yourself in other people's shoes, I think. And that's a lot of things to learn. And it's hard, you know, because you have to try and see every side of the story all the time, which is sort of counselling one-on-one, essentially. So I think I'd learned that about myself. We all slip up, you know, that's the first thing you learn when you become a counselor is that no one is a non-judgmental person. There's always going to be some level of judgment in every person, but it's if you can reflect on it and understand why you're doing it, that's the most important thing. And if I could go back and talk to my six, seven-year-old self, it would be to tell him to just keep going and don't change any of the decisions you've made because those decisions are the ones that have put you where you are today and they've set you on a path and a journey that is incredibly enlightening incredibly powerful so I think there's nothing I would change and I'd tell him just to keep going stay true to yourself you're a tenacious young boy with a lot of personality a lot of drive and although you sometimes don't think you've got any talent your talent is people and that is what will propel you forward so just keep going make the mistakes do the drugs learn from them and keep going and you'll build something amazing whatever that looks like (laughs)
0: Our final topic of conversation, George, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It's a general natter, a bit of a quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate?
1: Pretty good today, but that doesn't mean it will be good tomorrow or in the next hour. But at this moment in time, as I'm speaking to you on the podcast, it's pretty good.
0: Excellent, mate. And what age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind?
1: I would say I was probably a quarter of the way through the therapy is when I had the realisation. But maybe even going to the doctor, certainly not before that, it took a professional to help me see what was going on to be able to realise that these were thoughts and they weren't real and that I wasn't going insane or mad or crazy. That's certainly what it felt like. So I was probably 16, 17 when I had the realisation that what I was feeling was, you know, a poor mental health experience, and it took a professional to help me see that.
0: And then outside of therapy, tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What did you say? And did it feel like a big burden or a big weight had been lifted off your shoulders on the one hand or on the other did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant, and normal to do?
1: It would be the latter, I think. Uh I remember it well, it was my parents. It was when I was realised something was very wrong with me that I had the conversation. I, I sat we sat down at the table and I said, Something's not right, something doesn't feel right. I'm not myself. I don't know what's going on, but I'm not myself. And I'm experiencing these thoughts. I'm convinced I'm always on the drugs and I would like to see a doctor. And my parents will famously say that That's what, they are incredibly grateful for the fact that I did that, that I opened up and was so open and honest about my mental health with them, because it's what made me get better, essentially, helped me get better quicker, that I was so open to them and said, there's something wrong, can we go to the doctor? So that was probably the, the first people I spoke to about it, was my parents, and it didn't feel insignificant, it felt, in contrast, very significant, because it would set me on my road to recovery.
0: And then tell me just about what triggers you have that affect your mental health. So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular place, a social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: I don't think we can ever always figure them out in life. You learn and grow with them. They'll change as you get older. Obviously back then it was the drugs. Now it's various things that could be having alcohol and not remembering certain things. Not saying I get blackout drunk, but even if I'm tired, I don't remember certain things. I know that I'm more susceptible to my anxiety and my OCD when I'm tired and I'm vulnerable. So, that is not necessarily a trigger, but a a state that will will open up the anxiety and the OCD. The triggers can vary from day to day. So, I'm not going to say set in stone. I'm fortunate that social situations and environments don't necessarily make me anxious. But, however, I do get anxious about uncertainty. Uh, I like certainty, I'm very organized. So I try and keep on top of that. But in terms of uncertainty, I you know, I like having confirmation of things, essentially, if that makes sense. But yeah, I'm going to say that the triggers are sometimes fluid and will change on a day-to-day basis.
0: And then conversely, you spoke about cooking earlier in the podcast. So what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: Cooking is a good one. Reading is a good one. Going for walks is a good one. Having self-awareness is the biggest one. And recognising when you're not feeling yourself or something doesn't feel right. Because then you can act accordingly in response to and proactively before you get worse. What hasn't worked is social media. Using social media as a distraction technique is very, very detrimental. And ignoring the signs doesn't work. And thinking I need to keep myself busy and that will distract me from how I'm feeling. That doesn't work either. So self-awareness, once you have that self-awareness and recognition of what you're feeling, you can then act on walking, reading, cooking, or doing whatever you need to do. In particular, those are the things that help me in time and spending time with my partner, my girlfriend and my family and talking about it. Opening up and talking about it is a huge thing.
0: What is the best book or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health mate? Now it can be mental health related, but it definitely doesn't exclusively have to be.
1: I just don't know how to answer this, Freddie. I just this is too hard to answer. There's too many of them, and there's so many coming out now. But first one that sticks in my mind that I was reading when I was really poorly was "Reasons to Stay Alive" by Matt Haig, was spoke to me at the time. But now there are a lot more. You know, Natasha Devons has got some fantastic books. Bryony Gordon's "Mad Girl" was really helpful to me at the time because she experienced those intrusive thoughts. So. There's too many to say, but at the time, the one that sticks in my mind was Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig. But also my mother bought me one called My Age of Anxiety by Scott Stossel. And I haven't finished it yet because it's quite scientific, but I remember reading that and thinking, this is me. Uh, The first couple of chapters really spoke to me. So the ones that stick with me because I was very poor at the time are those ones.
0: And if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be mate
1: gosh my mental health um i don't know actually i'd I'd sort of take it as it comes in a way there's no guidebook to it but also there's no written journey for it so you've got to take it as it comes and be kind to yourself when you're not feeling yourself
0: and as a final question mate and this is a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it?
1: First and foremost is to not judge people. Secondly is to ask twice. If someone, one of your friends is, if, they, if you think there's something going on, Remember to ask twice. Give them a safe space to do it and listen. Is the most important thing. You don't have to give them a solution. You don't have to say, This is what works for me, because not everything works for everyone. So just listening to them is the most important thing, I think, and giving them that safe space to do and open up and talk about their mental health. And if that looks like talking about your own mental health in front of them to give them a sort of guide that you are a safe person to do it, then so be it. So it's almost like a stepped process, essentially. Never judging giving sort of active listening and opening up about your own mental health to encourage people that it's okay to do the same
0: and on that note george hodgson i'm so glad we finally got to do this thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and talking to me mate
1: thanks so much for having me freddie it's been a pleasure
0: well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to George for letting me check in with him, telling me all about the journey of Maison de Choup and his inspiring mental health journey. I'll put some links where you can follow George and his fantastic fashion brand as well in the show notes. As always, thanks to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, give us a rating and five star review on Apple Podcasts. Please go and buy a ticket to Just Checking Live Number Four. That's on Saturday, October the fifteenth. The link for that is on our link tree. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting us at Patreon. That's at wwwpatreoncom uk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That is also on our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to let...